tuning into season two of Art of Citizenry podcast. I am your host, Manpreet Kaur Kalra. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, I want to welcome you. For all those who have listened before, I'm so excited to have you here with me again. Art of Citizenry is a community-supported podcast dedicated to decolonizing storytelling. This allows me to have unfiltered and nuanced conversations that challenge how power plays out when discussing and addressing social, economic, climate, and geopolitical justice. We unpack history to really identify ways we can build a more equitable future, one that's restorative and just. To support this podcast, please give it five stars on your favorite listening app and be sure to subscribe. I'm also super excited to share that I am now officially on Patreon. So if you find this podcast insightful, please consider contributing to it and receiving exclusive content by visiting patreon.com slash Any support you can offer truly helps. I want to start this episode by acknowledging that season two is releasing a week later than I had planned, but that's just how the world works sometimes. As I was preparing to release my original opening episode, the Taliban swiftly took over the remaining portions of Afghanistan, culminating in the takeover of the capital Kabul and the Afghan government. I could not just sit idly and began a journey of learning that led to this episode. Before getting into the episode, I want to offer a trigger warning. We will be discussing topics related to gender-based oppression, war, and historical trauma. If you need to pause, step away, or just stop listening at any point, I understand. Unpacking these topics can be incredibly difficult, which is why I believe it's important to create safe spaces for critical conversations because it is these very unfiltered and raw conversations that allow us to truly deconstruct systems of oppression. The imagery and news coverage about what is unfolding in Afghanistan is creating a falsely dichotomous view of a complex and rich region suffocated by foreign occupation. It paints all women as oppressed by the burqa, hijab, and niqab, and all men as barbaric villains. We are increasingly seeing a narrative of saviorism and self-aggrandizing behavior. We saw this 20 years ago, and we are seeing this again today. Brown and black bodies have been historically treated like a commodity. The blatant stereotypes that are often perpetuated by governments, NGOs, aid organizations, and corporations reinforce the pervasive assumption that individuals of color are inherently oppressed and chronically need saving from their own communities, especially women of color. In the process, these organizations further stereotypes by villainizing cultures and religions. To understand the state of Afghan women in particular, we need to center the voices of Afghan women. Instead, most headlines and reporting around Afghanistan are hyper-focused on saving women and children without acknowledging the ways in which the United States, along with other foreign powers, have caused the harm we are seeing unfold in Afghanistan. 
During this episode, I have the privilege of speaking with an amazing Afghan woman who has done awesome work around grassroots and online community organizing. Together, we deconstruct what is happening in Afghanistan, how we got here, and ways in which the victimization of Afghan women is a tool to further white supremacy. Let's get started by meeting our guest. Thank you so much for having me on. My name is Medina Wardak. I am a mental health social worker based in Los Angeles. My parents actually fled the U.S.-backed proxy war against the Soviet Union with my two sisters. They left Afghanistan, um, basically were smuggled into Pakistan, and then stayed there for maybe two or three years, and then eventually applied for asylum to the States. They came here in 89, and then they had me in 1990. So we've been based in L.A. since then. And I'm lucky to kind of, you know, be tapped into the Afghan American community here in SoCal. And what I try to do, I have an Instagram platform called Burkas and Beer. And what I try to do with that is really just kind of community build, coalition build, but also get a lot of education out there um, in terms of mental health, but also just kind of you know, the past 40 years of war and, and how it's impacted Afghan. That's what my advocacy work centers around. The name Burkas and Beer, I am sure, turns a lot of heads. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with the name? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so I used to write these like very long Facebook statuses. Uh, they were like rants, right? And my cousins would be like, you just need to have a blog, um, and this was when I, you know, this is like 2013. Um, and I was like, okay, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll figure out how to make a blog. And I was like, trying to think of a catchy name. And obviously, like alliteration is like something that's catchy. But I also wanted something that was like satirical, um, poked fun, kind of at both sides of my identity, if you can call it. And so the burqa is overused regarding the discourse of Afghanistan. And then, and then like kind of, you know, Afghans, when we're talking about Americans, it's like, okay, well, they're drinking beer. And so burqas and beer just kind of came out of nowhere. And I was like, oh, wait, this sounds really good. Um, I've had such a myriad of like reactions to it. You know, I've had some people be like, this is haram. Like, how dare you? How can you say that? But then Thank God, like overwhelmingly, most people get the satire of it. I'm so glad I asked. Can you also share with us some of the topics that you explore through your work? Yeah, absolutely. So it very much ties into my career path. Um, so growing up in the Afghan American community, kind of feeling like a black sheep, which I feel like is so, so many of our stories, right? Like I think just having a dual identity, we can feel misplaced. But I also was very cognizant of the mental health issues and the um, substance abuse in my family. And so, you know, just not not only my nuclear family, but my extended family, you know, Afghans, we have very big families and, and it impacted all of us. And it didn't matter if you had actually survived the war or if you had never stepped foot in Afghanistan, like it was just something that was really permeating throughout these generations. And then so... While I'm recognizing this in my family, I'm also, you know, living in a post 9-11 world. I was turning 12 years old when September 11th happened. And so I think 
all of these experiences just really molded me being the first one out of my basically entire like clan to be born in Afghanistan. I grew up very Afghan. Both my sisters were like born and raised there. So I think it was just kind of all of this combined growing up in an environment that was not friendly to people from my region and then noticing how much the war was impacting my family. Although when I was younger, I don't think I made the connection. I just kind of thought like, wow, like Afghans are like miserable people. Like Jesus Christ, why is it that so many Afghan families, you know, the young boys are in jail because they're involved in gang activities because majority of the time we end up living, um, you know, in, in subsidized housing and just kind of poorer neighborhoods. And then, you know, if they're not doing that, they're on drugs and, and everybody's depressed and everyone's on meds and just all of this stuff. And it wasn't until I think I was in college that I made the connection that, oh, my God, it doesn't matter if we didn't experience the war. This is impacting all of us. And so when I learned about intergenerational trauma, it was such an eye opener for me. And I actually learned it through the lens of learning more about uh, the plight of indigenous folks in America. And so I became very interested in how intergenerational trauma impacted the indigenous community. And then I made the connections to Afghanistan and refugees in general. And so the creation of Burkas and Beer and finding my voice and using a platform very much coincided with me deciding that I wanted to be a mental health social worker. So a lot of times it's pretty much just strictly like information, like, okay, this is what intergenerational trauma is, or this is what PTSD is. Very straightforward information that you can use. At other times, it ties into like my personal story and kind of how I've navigated this identity, how I... Uh, reflect it back onto my community. And just there's so many layers to um, living this experience as a first generation woman, as you know, somebody who grows up in this political climate. Um, and sometimes burkas and beer is kind of like a diary, in a sense. Um, but I always try to tie it back into our greater experience as children of refugees, because I wish when I was growing up, I had somebody like me kind of holding my hand through it and being like, hey, this isn't your fault. Like, it's not your fault that you that your parents can't help you navigate the college system. It's not your fault that, you know, you're you have depression and you don't know how to name it. It's not your cousin's fault that they're addicted to substances. They have PTSD. I didn't know any of that stuff growing up. And so, like, for me, if if what I do even though sometimes it can be considered social suicide, you know, because th there was a time where a lot of folks thought you're airing your family's dirty laundry. But I think now I've been in the community long enough in a in a public way where it's helping people more to talk about all of these things that we all experience because there's not one Afghan family in diaspora who hasn't experienced this. That You know, it sucks because there's not real um, statistics on it. You know, as you know, our, our community is considered Caucasian in the States. And so there isn't real statistics on substance abuse, mental health issues, poverty, like we don't have these numbers. And so because we're not like counted, right? Like there's no accurate way to to take our data. And on top of it, especially Afghans, like they're very wary of, of giving data because so many of these folks like escape political persecution. And so they're really afraid of government tracking and all these different things. But as I grew older, I realized like these 
societal ailments impact all of us. And I don't know one Afghan family that doesn't have one person who is not an addict or one person who didn't go to jail or one person who doesn't, you know, suffer from mental health issues. And so if I can somehow just even reach one person and let them know that they're not alone, then I feel like I've, I've done what I can. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I really appreciate you sharing your deeply personal experiences. It makes me think about how in conversations around displacement, we often talk about individuals till the point of escaping war, but we don't take the time to recognize the ways in which refugees continue to navigate the trauma of displacement for generations after. You also touched upon another really important point. As of 1945, Afghans are classified as Caucasians on U.S. Census reports. In fact, I was recently speaking with someone who had just filled out a form for her kid's school, and this year they added more granular information about people to share how they identify. Every country was listed that surrounds Afghanistan, except for Afghanistan. And for her, that was incredibly triggering, because as we know, the way you erase a culture and identity is by simply not recognizing its existence. If you don't mind sharing, how are you navigating through the layers of generational trauma? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for me, I think we throw around this phrase decolonization or decolonizing a lot. And I'm glad that this this narrative is at the forefront. But for me, a big part of it, like I think the biggest part of it is like forgiving myself, forgiving myself for not being Afghan enough and not seeing that as a personal fault, but understanding that I unwillingly, before I was even born, was ripped away from my homeland. And when I really think about it, you know, sometimes I have these intense existential thoughts where I'm like, oh my God, you know, the history of the of the Pashtun people, of the Afghan people, some, some historians say goes back 5,000 years. And if that's true, then that means that for 5,000 years, my lineage has been attached to that land. And what does that mean? How does that impact the way I think about myself and the way I navigate myself in this world and how I perceive the world? And I think it's really like um, extremely traumatic, even if you don't realize it. Like I didn't, I don't think I ever understood the trauma of displacement until I went back to Afghanistan. And I say went back, it was the first time I was there. But to me, it was returning. You know, I went for the first and last time in 2018. And the second that I saw the snow-covered mountains, I knew I was returning. It wasn't that it was my first time going there. It was... My soul has been there. The connection that I had to that land, I've never felt in my life. Everything made sense. I just felt so at home. And even though it didn't look like the Afghanistan that my parents talked about all the time, because, you know, for them, it looked a lot different. It it just made sense to me. And seeing people that look like me and speak my languages and 
not having to like explain myself, which is funny because like I felt more at home there as an Afghan American than I do here as like an American citizen my whole life. I, you know, Afghans there were so welcoming. And so understanding that the people from our region come from very communal cultures and we have a different culture. We take care of each other. We don't believe in hurting each other. We don't rip resources away from each other. We don't treat each other like we're commodities. We have a very sacred bond to each other and to the land. And that was a big part of forgiving myself for not knowing that it's not my fault that I'm not that way or that I can I can be that way. I can learn how to be that way. And it's okay that I can't speak my languages perfectly. And it's okay that maybe I don't understand my spirituality perfectly because it's not my fault. Navigating that for me was just like forgiving myself and being like, look, it is not our fault. Our parents had very limited choices. We have to do what we have to do here. But first and foremost, like, We're just a victim of our circumstance. And as soon as we can really come to terms with that, then I think like that's where the healing kind of begins, or at least it did for me. Mm. Listening to you touches me so close to the heart. My own community feels that pain. During the partition of Punjab, which led to the creation of present-day Pakistan, my grandparents were forced away from their homes. The violence that occurred during that period took the life of their siblings and other family members. My ancestral homeland is tied to the fields of West Punjab. I have never had the opportunity of knowing how it feels to visit my generational home because for me and many people like me, it has been taken away from us. I hear my dad often wish to visit his ancestral village, which is now in present-day Pakistan, before he dies, but you know, that's the thing. For me, I feel like I really have no homeland. It's been stolen and I'm not welcomed neither here nor there. What I did learn more recently is just how much our communal stories are so intertwined. The partition of Punjab that led to the creation of Pakistan has always weighed heavily on my heart. What I didn't realize is how that same moment in history weighed so heavily on the Afghan community as well. When trying to understand how we got here, why previously colonized countries continue to struggle with all forms of justice, we need to first unpack historical context. The Durand Line refers to the 1,640-mile border that divides Afghanistan and Pakistan. It is a result of a treaty pushed forth by British India in 1893 after the second of three Anglo-Afghan wars. That agreement essentially leased the southern Pashtun lands to the British, and it was supposed to demarcate spheres of influence between British India and Afghanistan. The belief at the time was that Afghanistan was going to get those lands back. Nobody had the foresight to know that a partition was going to happen. And so partition happened. And, you know, very much against the wishes of Pashtun and Afghan leadership in India, you know, Bacha Khan, his real name is Abdul, Abdul Ghaffar Khan, was one of the biggest resistance leaders to partition. And he's an Afghan. 
because I think he had the foresight to understand how devastating this would be for Afghanistan. You know, not only did we lose half of, you know, our ancestral homeland as Pashtuns, but it divided us. That border cuts through tribes. It cuts through resources. It cuts through villages. There's Pashtuns that exist in Pakistan who maybe support the Pakistani government and are not super aware of how devastating this has been to not only Afghans, but specifically the Pashtun people. And, you know, when you look at these grassroots movements, like the Pashtun Tahafuz movement that's led by Manzur Pashtun, who's from Waziristan, and it's led in Pakistan, that's a direct result of what the British did centuries mm-hmm. ago, you know, literally mm-hmm. divide and conquer, like exactly what happened in Punjab. That's literally what happened in the, in the Pashtun regions. And nobody talks about it. Like Afghanistan is always left out of the narrative of partition. But for people to understand why Afghanistan is in the state that it's in today, you have to understand that the loss of that land mm-hmm. is a big reason Pakistan's government and military has it on their agenda to keep Afghanistan unstable. Because if, if Afghanistan is destabilized, then there's absolutely no way that Afghan leadership can ever try to get that land back. Afghanistan has historically been a region under occupation during an ongoing game of political chess. What is the media failing to capture? What we're seeing on TV today and this whole narrative about Afghanistan falling to the Taliban, like the Taliban were never gone. Like they weren't ever completely not in control of certain parts of Afghanistan. Like it was mainly Kabul that was safe. But when we talk about the Taliban, you have to go back to the past 40 years of intervention in Afghanistan. That starts with the USSR invading in the late 70s. And, you know, at the time, obviously America was not very fond of the USSR. And so America, along with Pakistan and and England, jumped on the opportunity to create instability within the region and to essentially fight a proxy war. Um, Mm -hmm. And that environment gave rise to the Taliban. Afghanistan was not always like this. Afghanistan was relatively free. The Afghanistan that my parents grew up in was completely different. What's like missing in this narrative is all of the foreign intervention that got us to this place because it just served imperialist interests. As you mentioned, the rise of the Taliban is rooted in Cold War politics between the United States and the Soviet Union, a reality that's often ignored. What blows my mind, and I can truly only speak from my experience living in the United States, but in the U.S., there is an obsession with painting the Taliban as a terrorist organization that comes into existence because that is innate to Islam, without at all acknowledging how the Taliban came to be in the first place. Can you tell us a little bit about Operation Cyclone? Operation Cyclone is the CIA's most expensive and longest covert operation. And it it was pretty much um, the, the Pakistani ISI, the American CIA, and the British MI6 working together with regional powers like Saudi Arabia, a little bit with Iran, China, and even Israel. Surprise, surprise, Pakistan worked with Israel to basically fund the anti-Soviet resistance in Afghanistan. Now, with that being said, There 
are um, and were Afghan Mujahideen who were anti-Soviet. And there were like there was good Mujahideen, like there were people who really believed that they're doing this because they're they're freedom fighters and they're fighting for, um, you know, freedom from communism in their country. And that's fine. But what it also did is it it basically created a motley crew of like warlords, like warlords that have really horrible track records, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, Dostam, Sayyaf, like these people that were given a lot of money to basically go into Afghanistan and, and kick out the Soviets. And that sounds great. Sounds great on paper. Sure. Like, let's fund this anti-Soviet Afghan resistance. But the people that you're funding are like literally genocidal. And, mm-hmm. and then as soon as the Soviets were kicked out, all of these foreign governments that were so supporting the Afghans pulled out. They pulled everything out. And Afghanistan fell into civil war. I don't even like to call any of the past years of of 40 years of conflict a civil war because it was never Afghans necessarily fighting each other. Like, yeah, on the ground it was, but every faction was supported by a foreign government. It was the funding of anti-Soviet resistance, which led to a very genocidal and brutal civil war and which eventually created the climate that made the Taliban. You know, often the ways others see us is shaped by imperialist narratives about communities and cultures that continue to fuel Euro-American superiority. The United States justified fighting the Soviet occupation in Afghanistan with the liberation of Afghan women, especially by funding the very organization that years later the U.S. went to war against to again liberate women. Needless to say... This was never about liberating Afghan women. They have been and continue to be used as a pawn in a game of chess. For example, when the Taliban captured Kabul in 1996, the U.S. government remained silent, despite the accompanying human rights violations against women and political opponents. It wasn't until the Taliban began attacking U.S. interests that the United States began to care. As a result of this narrative, Afghan women have been painted by the media as oppressed individuals who have absolutely no agency. As an Afghan woman yourself, how have you navigated this narrative? You know, I never bought into it because the women in my family and also just Afghan women, I mean, Afghan women run their households, like incredibly opinionated really just like wild aunties and loud and strong and just very strong-willed like I didn't see that in my family and I'm talking about my family right so I can only speak for myself but I never saw that my mom literally fought tooth and nail to carve her life the way that she wanted it to be. Her father was a very well-known and respected general, and he received that position because our, our ancestors were in the Afghan army and they fought the British. So my grandfather had this pretty good position with like a good salary. And when she was three years old, he passed away. And so at that time, there wasn't necessarily like a very good pension system or like basically my grandma was left with nothing. So my grandma is a widow who was, you know, married um, to this like pretty wealthy general and now doesn't have any money. And so she essentially went from Badakhshan, which is in the north, 
back to Wardak, which which is our ancestral town. And in Wardak, you know, she has all these daughters and her only son has a heart defect. And so my mom like had a really hard time just kind of not having a man to rely on. And it's still a patriarchal society and it's still a society where, you know, women have to have to fight harder, just like how it is everywhere. And she was arranged to my father when she was 14 years old because my grandma literally couldn't afford to take care of, of all of her kids. And my dad really encouraged her to study. You know, he was like, we can do this together type of thing. And so at the time, this was a little bit before the, the, the Soviet invasion, but there was a lot of emphasis on um, getting women educated. And, and it was, you know, social mobility was like on the up and up, I guess you could say. And so my mom took full advantage of it. And, and she completed grade school like in a matter of two years because she didn't really go to grade school when she was younger um, and ended up being like one of the first female accountants in Kabul, not the first one, but uh, among that cohort. I mean, I look at photos of her in like her English class and in her accounting class, and she's the only woman. And she's she's there with her skirt and her cigarette in hand. And my sisters kind of did the same for themselves here in America. So I never identified with it. Now, with that being said, do I recognize that it's a very patriarchal culture? Yeah, absolutely. Do I recognize that like there's still Afghan women who have a really hard time in abusive relationships and and can be seen as oppressed and maybe even view themselves as oppressed? Yeah, I don't think that Afghan women are a monolith. And so it's like difficult. Anytime we're talking about like Afghan women, it's like, okay, well, what about American women? Like an American woman in a high rise in Manhattan is very different than an American woman on Skid Row. So it's hard when you have to reconcile your gender through, like how you said, this kind of imperialist narrative about it, because I don't identify with that. But do I recognize that maybe somebody else does? Yeah. And and I don't feel comfortable ever, you know, speaking on behalf of all Afghan women. We all have so, so many different experiences. But are we all operating within a white supremacist, imperialist, misogynistic, patriarchal framework? Yeah, absolutely. And that's only exacerbated by war. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you said this yourself, the victimization of Afghan women is a tool to further white supremacy. What we often fail to acknowledge is that white women, white feminism in particular, can often perpetuate misogyny. In 2001, Representative Carolyn Maloney, a white congresswoman out of New York, wore a burqa when delivering a speech to the House of Representatives in Congress in the name of equating the war on terror to fighting for oppressed Afghan women. During her address, she stated, the restrictions on women's freedoms in Afghanistan are unfathomable to most Americans. She then followed her statement by describing the burqa as heavy and cumbersome. This is just one example of how the liberation of Afghan women has been used historically to justify war. What are your reflections? It's absolutely wild to me that this is what people think is feminism. Like, that's what you think is going to liberate Afghan women, like, by by making their lives worse. It's really scary. And I feel like it's so normalized. Just like you said, you know, that New York representative 
she went on the house floor and she was talking about how claustrophobic she felt in the burqa. Look, women in the south of Afghanistan have been wearing the burqa for thousands of years. It is not inherently an Afghan thing. A lot of folks say it's an Arab import, but there's a lot of women that choose to wear it because it's comfortable. With that being said, there's a lot of women who don't choose to wear it. It's so stupid that like Afghan women are reduced to this piece of cloth. I feel like people don't want to talk about Afghan women unless it's like through the mouth of a white woman. When you really logically think about it, it doesn't make sense. When you bomb a place, you're completely making it unstable. You're likely bombing civilians. You're likely uprooting any infrastructure that's there. You're probably killing the breadwinners in the family you're adding to more ptsd and mental health issues it it's it's so illogical to me that the fact that like this is even a conversation me and you get it but the fact that these other people have this conversation and they think that it's somehow gonna liberate afghan women is so far-fetched to me what's up with white feminist obsession with the burqa i just i i'm genuinely curious You know, I really don't get it because it's never been something that I've thought about. You know, even when I was in Kabul, mind you, in Kabul, it's a very different generation than than, you know, the Kabul that my parents grew up in. A lot of Gen Z's and the millennial, well, mainly more the millennials that grew up in Kabul lived under under the Taliban. So they're like they're still kind of getting used to seeing women navigating the streets like yeah it's been 20 years but still you know like those those formative years impact you there were moments where I was like man this might be easier in a burqa and not even in a way where I was like I'm oppressing myself I was just kind of like look the same thing happens to me when I'm walking around Van Nuys men stare everywhere point blank and so if somebody feels like they can navigate the world better wearing that then fine but the the point of it is like choice and so I don't understand why these white women are so obsessed with the burqa it's like some weird fetish I think it goes with that whole orientalizing of that region compounding this idea that we're these exotic creatures and we're you know meant to be uncovered and what do afghan women really want it's like a weird fetish you made a comment a bit earlier about the burqa being an arab import can you elaborate A lot of Afghans say this, that the burqa is an Arab import. That's not necessarily true. If you look at like old oil paintings of like noble women in Kandar or Jalalabad, they're wearing the burqa. It became kind of an Arab import, quote unquote, when the Taliban mandated it and all women had to wear it. And so when I look at pictures from like you know, 1960s Kabul. Now, mind you, I'm talking about Kabul. Most women observe some type of headscarf around their head. But back in the day, before all this war and all of this stuff, and before it was all mandated, like it was kind of like a very fluid choice. A few years ago, I read this book called Headscarves and Hymens by Mona El-Tahawi. She was actually in Seattle, and during the Q&A portion of her book reading, a white woman told her how she wanted to approach Muslim women in the grocery store and ask how she can help. Mind you, there is already layers to unpack here. The fact that she means particularly Muslim women who cover their head, and also the notion that there is an assumption that because a Muslim woman covers her head, she needs help. And to Mona's credit, she replied, please don't sharing that it was her community's conversation to be had and not that of a random white woman in Seattle who sees Muslim women in the grocery store. I do want to read a passage from her book in which she basically describes how 
on one end, you have the far right conservatives and the other side you have, and I'm going to, and I quote, those Western liberals who rightly condemn imperialism and yet are blind to the cultural imperialism they are performing when they silence critiques of misogyny. They behave as if they want to save my culture and faith from me and forget that they are immune to the violations about which I speak, blind to the privilege and paternalism that drive them they give themselves the right to determine what is authentic to my culture and faith. If the right wing is driven by a covert racism, the left sometimes suffers from an implicit racism through which it usurps my right to determine what I can and cannot say. I share this quote because I believe that throughout the history of war in Afghanistan, the voices of Afghan women have been overshadowed by the centering of white saviorism, which fuels white feminism. Just earlier this week, the Washington Post published an article about a woman named Allison Renault from Oklahoma who has been giving media interviews, starting with the Today Show, about how she rescued and saved the Afghan girls' robotics team from Kabul. The team's lawyer recently issued a cease-and-desist letter to the woman warning that her numerous media appearances actually further endangered any of the members and their families who remained in Afghanistan. Turns out, not only was she putting these individuals at harm, but she's also overstating her role, centering herself and giving the media what it wants, a white savior to put up on a pedestal. The article quotes Kim Motley, the team's lawyer, as stating, Recycling old pictures from the Afghan girls' robotics team, many of whom are minors, as validation that you had anything to do with their immensely stressful and dangerous escape not only impacts the safety of the girls, but also significantly affects the safety of the members of the team who still remain in Afghanistan. It is highly unfortunate that you would use such a tragically horrible situation for what appears to be your own personal gain. And the worst part of all of this is the Oklahoma woman basically came out and stated, I don't see anything wrong with what I've been doing. I'm going to keep doing it because it is going to save Afghan women. It's disturbing. And as the lawyer mentioned, this woman is literally sharing photos of minors without their or their parents' informed consent something that we see all the time in the social impact, fair trade, and global development space. It is poverty porn. So I am curious, has there been immense progress for women over the past 20 years of U.S. occupation in Afghanistan? The U.S. occupation didn't necessarily change much for women's rights. 80% of Afghan women still suffered domestic violence. 57% of Afghan marriages were girls under 16. Most um, Afghan women felt that their marriages were coerced. A quarter of women fa face sexual violence. I mean, the, the, the public murder of Farhunda in 2015 
was literally in in Kabul in front of everyone. They they murdered her and they threw her body in the Kabul River. And like little kids had their cell phones out and they were recording it. The Taliban didn't control Kabul at that time. This is war, compounding war, compounding war, making people desensitized, creating a bigger gender gap. War exacerbates conditions that already exist. All of these things are global problems. Misogyny is a a global problem. Domestic violence is a global problem. Sex trafficking is a global problem. But in a place that is experiencing war, you see those ugly social ailments come out more. I've noticed that when it comes to Afghan women, contemporary conversations around gender equity have equated what they wear to degrees of oppression. By doing so, we have made freedom synonymous with Western fashion standards instead of centering what freedom means to Afghan women themselves, which could very well include their self-defined priorities around access to economic, education, and political agency. So much of how the world understands Afghan women's experiences, and you said this earlier, Afghan women are not a monolith, but that's what the single narrative has done. It has made Afghan women a monolith because instead of centering the voices of Afghan women, we are hearing about their experiences through the mouth of white feminists. You've written about this on Instagram in the past, but can you talk a little little bit about how white feminism has contributed to the rise of patriarchal Taliban? What I am seeing is what I saw when I was 12, 13 years old. And it's wild to me that even after 20 years and this whole woke movement of like folks on social media, which is awesome and I welcome it, we're still regurgitating the exact same headlines. War and occupation are not essential to freeing Afghan women. You don't need to do that in order to free Afghan women. And war and occupation are also not going to undo any misogyny that a man holds. And this is the thing, like Afghan women didn't ask for this war. Activists like Malalai Joya, who's done work for Afghanistan for years and years, and she's called out the US um, invasion. The Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, which is the acronym is RAWA, they oppose the US invasion. Afghan women literally did not ask for this. With that being said, Did the occupation give some social mobility to a handful of women? Yeah, absolutely. Are those women grieving right now? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're toying with their lives. It's not that anybody needed the U.S. to save them. But Jesus Christ, you go in there, you give uh, you give a very select group of people a taste of what could happen. Because mind you, women in the South are still being droned. They have no way of getting to Kabul and getting an education. And I think as an Afghan in the West and as a woman in the West and kind of reliving what I experienced as a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old, I just don't understand why like we don't learn from history. I think because the invasion of Afghanistan rode so hard on the back of liberating Afghan women, you proved the Taliban right. All of this propaganda that they have and these beliefs that they have that these foreigners want to come and make our women like them and create kind of a little Western colony in our country. The the desire of women to have social mobility is now going to be attributed to them being brainwashed by the West versus that's literally what they want. A lot of these Taliban folks, like, bro, your grandma probably had social mobility in Kabul. Like, it's not a Western import. But, like, by by this foreign occupation, you could, they can easily make that argument. 
And so, yeah, I think that white feminism definitely contributed to the increase of the radicalization of these folks and it just actually made them stronger. So I want to acknowledge that I'm not Afghan. So I do want to respect that it is not my space to take. But as someone who works in the global development space with impact-driven brands and organizations, I struggle. By focusing just on Afghan women and children when talking about refugees, we continue to villainize Afghan men, painting them as oppressors, not as people who can also be oppressed. Not all Afghan men are Taliban. Historically, men of the global south have been stereotyped as abusive, misogynistic, and threatening, with women, on the other hand, being often described as victims who need to be saved. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Right, yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you mentioned you're not from the community, like, but this is like how insidious this is. It impacts your community too. Like how many Sikh men have been targets of like hate crimes? It's like, you're close enough. Painting Pashtun men or Afghan men as villains is gonna impact everybody who's proximal to that community. The Taliban are just a very hyper-masculine, hyper-aggressive version of any man that exists on any face of the earth. I'm not giving them an excuse, but it's like, Jesus, this can happen in any society. It can happen anywhere. This is not inherent to Afghan culture. It's not inherent to Afghan men. You're talking about a country that's experienced 40 years of war, a bunch of foreign funding and intervention, a very radicalized view of Islam because it serves the purpose of foreign governments. This is the thing. The leadership of the Taliban, they're all trash and they're all warlords and they're all using, you know, Islam to to further their own agenda. But these foot soldiers, they're little kids that have been recruited typically from refugee camps in Pakistan. Sometimes when I look at the videos of them, like they're wearing sandals. Like these are poor kids. Like I have empathy for them. I don't know what led you to believe that this is what you have to do. I can only imagine, you know, if you are living in the South and I, and I tend to say the South because that's where the Taliban operate from. And that's where the majority of um, the American drones were being dropped. If your entire family is decimated by a drone, by an American drone, And somebody who looks like you, speaks your language, practices your religion, says, hey, come join the fight and I'm going to give you shelter. I'm going to give you a salary and I'm going to make sure that you get retribution for what these foreigners did to your family. I'm sorry, but I don't think I could say no because I don't know what it's like to experience that. Yeah, obviously I'm anti-Taliban, but at the same time, these are a lot of these people are kids, like they're little kids who don't know better. And it's these really horrible, horrible warlords and these people that have power that are manipulating them. They're not doing it because they want to liberate Afghanistan from foreigners. They're doing it because they want access to all these resources and they use these poor little kids for it. Absolutely. And it's so sad to see that children are caught in the middle of all of it. It's easy to paint broad brush strokes, but when you sit and unpack the layers, you can get a better understanding. We can't just try to address an issue with a single narrow viewpoint. I read a study recently. In 1998, the Physicians for Human Rights published an influential article on women's health in Afghanistan that concluded that women in Afghanistan have poor overall health especially poor mental health, and that the Taliban were the main cause for these desperate conditions. However, the issue with the PHR report 
is that they didn't look into whether the poor health of Afghan women was instead a result of losing family members to war, depression, poverty due to a loss of a home, lack of sanitation, etc. Instead, it was much easier to isolate the cause to the single trope, Taliban. This gross oversimplification fuels the very narratives used to justify war, completely ignoring that many of these causes may actually be a result of war. I'm not saying that the Taliban has no role in this, but I do think it's important for us to take a moment to really peel back those layers and understand the different complexities to why a situation is the way it is. We have to go to the root. When we get to the root, we realize how interconnected our worlds truly are. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think that this should apply to everything, like every social ailment, every single problem that we have in society. You know, we need to stop thinking about treatment and think about prevention with anything, anything that you see in the headlines, any type of issue that you see, like, Sure, you can focus on like how we're going to treat the situation now, but think critically and deeply about how you got here. Ask yourself why you live in privilege and why those people don't. We need to stop making this division between like the West and the East and the global South. And like, we need to like really move away from these labels and start to critically analyze why every single person is in the position that they're in and how that literally could have been you. I, I think that that's, that's the biggest part of it. And the, and when we realize that all of us are operating within kind of the same frameworks, right? Like I really do believe that like a veteran is also a victim of imperialism, just like I am like, starting to see ourselves as a human family because then that changes it from that's their problem and not mine like really viewing each other as a family as kumbaya as that sounds but like literally these things have a ripple effect and I'm speaking to you in English today and 30 years ago if my parents didn't cross that border I would have been one of those Afghan girls today and that's not fair you know, it's not fair that I get to sit over here and I get to talk about them in this way. And so just kind of thinking bigger and asking yourself why you ended up here and there over there, you know, holding yourself accountable to holding your space of privilege accountable to and and just being more compassionate to each other. Like, I think I think that's what it is. I mean, that's what I hope it will be. Mm, yeah. Speaking of accountability, I do want to touch upon the famous image titled the Afghan girl. Victimizing imagery is a standard fare in marketing campaigns for impact-driven brands and organizations. Over the past two weeks, I have seen pictures upon pictures of women in burqas and children in ragged clothing being used to justify U.S. occupation in Afghanistan. These images, when taken from the lens and shared through the viewpoint of someone who holds more power only further feed into stereotypes about communities and cultures. A lot of the images of Afghanistan that are currently circulating on Instagram are photos taken by National Geographic photographer Steve McCurry, who is most famous for his iconic photo titled Afghan Girl, which was published on the cover of National Geographic in 1985. The woman who was photographed, Sherbeth Gula, was pulled out of class 
without her consent or parental consent by the photographer, a white male, who took her to a nondescript location, posed her, and photographed her. What that photo is most known for is the fear in her eyes. When you read interviews with Sherbeth Gullah in recent years, she talks about how that one photograph derailed her life while giving the photographer global recognition, which let's take a moment to acknowledge how this man has benefited off of the exotification of communities and trauma. And in all honesty, that is fear in her eyes, but that fear is not about, it has nothing to do with her being Afghan. That fear is that of a stranger who is shoving a camera in her face without her informed consent, which is exactly what is clearly missing in the case of Alison Renault that we were chatting about earlier. That photo is supposedly the most recognized photo in the world, which just goes to show you that representation doesn't save Afghan women because everybody can point out the Afghan girl, but the plight of Afghan women today is the same as it was before. When I was younger, I used to tutor, like I would tutor and babysit for these like rich white families. And I remember the first time going into this family's home and I walked in and like in their in their hallway, basically, like leading into their house, they had this very large picture of young Afghan girls with colored eyes in a refugee camp. And I was like, oh, where's that picture from? I knew where it was from, but 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 I said, hey, where's that picture from? And the dad said, oh, those are Pakistani girls. I, I got this photo um, and, and they're of Pakistani girls. And I said, no, they're not. I said, those are Afghan refugees in a refugee camp in Pakistan. And it was so weird to me that I'm standing there in this white man's house, staring at my counterparts. And this white man is telling me who these little girls are. Afghan women's faces and Afghan girls' faces are just plastered everywhere. But we're still in the same exact position that we were before. As we begin wrapping up, I am curious, what have the reactions been within the Afghan community that you know of the U.S.'s withdrawal? There is a divide within the Afghan community of like what should happen. Uh, there's a lot of people who benefited from the occupation because it got them out of Afghanistan. But nobody wants foreigners running their country. The majority of Afghans that I've spoken to that I know who live there, it's not that they wanted the U.S. to stay there forever. Everybody wants the right to self-determine and everybody wants to be able to run their country the way that they see fit. But there is this big divide in the Afghan community because I think a lot of us are just emotional and triggered. And like, overall, the withdrawal was very negligent and very irresponsible. And I think because of that, there's like, for some folks in the community, there's like this reactionary idea of like, you should have stayed longer. But it's not necessarily that it's pro-US occupation. It's that you shouldn't have done it that way. What narratives do you believe are being missed? You know, I think that we're asking the wrong questions. I think that what is being missed is the devastating impacts of war. You know, like that's what's being missed. Like, if you want to talk about Afghan women, go for it. But then talk about the drone program. Then talk about the night raids. Then talk about the torture at Bagram Air Base. Then talk about you know, the Australian war crimes where they indiscriminately killed 
30 Afghan civilians. Talk about the rapes. Talk about the torture. Talk about the skinning. Talk about how you can't freaking do a civilian count when it's like piles of flesh. Like, that's what we don't talk about. We keep talking about people who are living. Let's talk about the ones that died. Like, it's, you know, it's wild to me because the majority of Americans don't understand that. A lot of people are not impacted by war, like the way that maybe me and you are, or partition, or or displacement, or, you know, running from a drug cartel, whatever it is, like these decision makers, at least, don't know what that's like. They have no framework of it. They don't know. They're so privileged to it. Like, I grew up hearing about how my dad almost got shot because they thought that he was a traitor when he was crossing into the border. And, you know, my sister, her first English assignment was, what does freedom mean to you? And everybody else said like, oh, you know, staying past curfew. And my sister's answer was, freedom is knowing that my dad's going to walk through the door and I don't have to worry if he's dead or not. That's what's being missed. Let's talk about how ugly the consequences of war is let's why are we talking about maybe the very small strides that have been made and i don't want to downplay and invalidate those strides i know a lot of my afghan sisters their lives bet on those goddamn strides but maybe if the world didn't intervene 40 years ago they wouldn't have to depend on us occupation to have social mobility that is what is missing we're missing how this kills people, like makes people widows, makes children orphans. It's devastating and it's horrible. And and it's 40 years and every single Afghan person that you will ever meet. Imagine, you can't say this for Americans, but you can say this for Afghans. Every single Afghan that you meet knows someone who has been disappeared, know someone who has been tortured, know someone who's been sexually assaulted, and know someone who has died. If it's not in their family, it's their friends. And there's not, you know, the decision makers are not from a group of people that can say that. And so that's what I think is missing. This has to do with the plight of Afghan women. You're killing their fathers and you're killing them. Absolutely. Can you share with us some actions non-Afghans can take? I guess what I would implore... Um, especially Americans, whatever race you are, whatever country your family originally comes from, is learn more about the horrors that America did there. You know, I think that because the media is so centered about the strides, it's easy just to like look at that and be like, oh my God, like they need us type of stuff because I fall victim to that too sometimes. But really do your research. You know, there's this incredible book. It's called um, The Afghanistan Papers. And it's basically like an expose of all of the lies that every single president since Bush has told us. I guess what I'm trying to say is understand how messed up this war was so that we make sure that we hold our governments accountable when they try to do it again, because I promise you they'll try to do it again. And we just all have to be more informed. Because that's the thing. That's like part of it, right? Is that people are just not informed. And so I can't necessarily blame them for like being complacent. So go and get informed. Understand where your tax dollars are going and make sure that these people are being held accountable and not in your name, not in our name, no more. Any final thoughts that you would like to share? Stop thinking of Afghanistan as somebody else's problem because it's your problem. I think when we look at these issues as isolated issues and as 
that problem over there that doesn't impact me, it impacts you. The mm -hmm. past 20 years of occupation, the opium production increasing coincides with the global opiate crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these things lead to each other. They have a ripple effect. And so stop seeing um, whether it's the farmers protest, whether it's what's happening in Afghanistan, whether it's, you know, the plight of black folks in America, whatever it is, understand that that's going to impact you. You might not mm -hmm. see the impact now, but you will. Mm -hmm. And so I think I just want to implore to everyone and I'm going to take this seriously too for myself, because sometimes yeah. I'm guilty of it too. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to like literally like screw, like mind F yourself all the time and just always be woke and always know about everything, yeah. but remove the wall between communities. It's, we live in a global world global society now mm -hmm. and what is happening in my country is going to impact you how, no matter how far you are you know um so that's like my takeaway is like stop seeing Afghanistan as an issue that's not yours because it is your issue thank you so much Medina for joining me opening your heart with us and sharing your valuable insights I had a chance to do an Instagram live with Medina earlier this month and have included a link to it along with other resources mentioned throughout this episode in the show notes. To learn more about the amazing advocacy work Medina has been doing, be sure to follow her on Instagram. Her handle is at Burkas and Beer. I'd like to leave all of you with some actions to consider. Make space to listen, learn from, and amplify Afghan voices. Check out the show notes for resources on ways you can take action and help Afghan refugees who are having to rebuild their lives. Reach out to your local congressional representative, ask them to increase refugee quotas and accept all Afghan asylum seekers. You can do this by texting CRISIS to 52886. And finally, Avoid using oversimplified language and tropes rooted in imperialist ideologies about Afghan people. I would like to leave everyone with a powerful quote from Mona El-Tahawi. Help your own communities, woman, fight misogyny. By doing so, you help the global struggle against the hatred of women. With that, I want to thank all of you for tuning in. This podcast is entirely listener-supported. I truly hope you consider contributing to it by visiting patreon.com slash To learn more about Art of Citizenry and for information on future webinars and workshops, please visit artofcitizenry.com. You can also find me on Instagram at monthweekcalra. Please remember to subscribe to the Art of Citizenry podcast on your favorite listening app and give it five stars on iTunes. From here on Duwamish land, sending positive and healthy vibes your way.